The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. The title of my message this evening is Too Good Not to Believe. Too Good Not to Believe. The context for our message, again, falls on the heels of this incredible miracle that Jesus performed where he fed a multitude in upwards of 15 or 20,000 people with a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish. It was an impactful miracle, and in response to it, the people were so impressed that they literally tried to take Jesus by force and make him their king. But Jesus, we're told, slipped away. Now, if he had at that time consulted with a public relations firm, they would have told him that he needed to strike while the iron was hot. This was his moment, the one he'd been planning and waiting for. He needed to capitalize on the momentum that had been generated by this miracle, and he needed to leverage it to draw even bigger crowds. So what would Jesus say to this massive crowd that had gathered this crowd that wanted him to be their king, to be their champion. Well, we pick up in the middle of his words in verse 48 of John 6. He said, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. Now this bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give his flesh for us to eat? Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Now, he said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. All right, so let's talk about this. What kind of sermon did Jesus cook up for this huge, huge crowd? I mean, verse 59 tells us that he made these remarks there in the local synagogue in Capernaum. You can imagine a crowd that size. It's it's standing room only, only. Everyone is huddled in, pressed up against each other, shoulder to shoulder. People are spilling out of the windows and out of the doors and into the streets, and everyone is craning their neck to hear what Jesus is going to say. So what does he have to say? What's on the agenda? What's his sermon all about? Well, we learn that Jesus uses here his biggest stage to deliver one of his most offensive messages. He'd already put the crowd on edge by claiming that he had come down from heaven. They didn't really like that part of his sermon. And then he further complicated things by saying that he was the bread of life. That irked them even more. 
But now he made matters far worse by saying, this bread is my flesh, which I give for the world. Eat my flesh? Drink my blood or you have no part of me? Really, Jesus? Like, this is it? This is, this is your big sermon? Like, we're going cannibalism here? Oh, my goodness. This is a tough one, right? By the way, they were telling cannibalism jokes backstage. I have one for you. What did the cannibal wife say to her, serve to her husband when he came home late for dinner? What did she serve him up? Cold shoulder. Oh. And then I do have one more cannibal joke, believe it or not. I don't know why. This one's actually a Ray Bentley classic. He used to say, what did the one cannibal say to the other cannibal while they were eating a clown? Does this taste funny to you? <laughs> Anyways, I, that's like the entirety of my repertoire of cannibalism jokes. But here we are dealing with Jesus as he talks about what it means to eat his flesh and to drink his blood. Now, when Jesus said this, I can imagine the disciples just burying their heads in their hands, rubbing their temples and thinking to themselves, oh boy, here we go again. (laughs) Jesus was always throwing these guys curveballs. And by this point, they were used to him saying controversial things. After all, this is the same guy who, when he had gathered a large crowd, said, if you want to follow me, you need to deny yourself and then pick up your cross and follow me to your death. On another occasion, he told a crowd that unless you hate your mother and your father and your brothers and sisters, you're not really worthy to be called my disciple. And then there was that time he told the crowd, if your right eye causes you to sin, pop it out. Jesus had a lot of difficult things to say, but of all the offensive, difficult, challenging teachings of Jesus, I think this one takes the cake, right? Things had been going so well. The miracles were a hit. The crowds were growing. The the people were talking. The future was bright. So why is Jesus here talking about eating his flesh? I mean, even his own disciples were having trouble with this one. Look at verse 60. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, oh, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? So aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words that I've spoken to you, they are full of spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which one of them did not believe and who would betray him. And he went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. So Jesus, being the good teacher that he is, he senses the unease in the crowd, and he addresses their problems and explains in greater detail what he's trying to talk about. And so the key, the interpretive key, if you will, that unlocks this entire passage and, and brings meaning for us is verse 63. And right there in verse 63, Jesus says that the flesh profits nothing, but that the words he's speaking are spirit-filled words, that they are life-filled words. Okay, so Jesus is drawing a distinction here between the flesh and the spirit, that which is earthly and physical and that which is eternal and spiritual. His words weren't 
meant to be taken literally, in other words. He was speaking to them on a spiritual level. And that's what he's been doing throughout this entire message. This is our third week studying John chapter 6, but these, these events all happen concurrently. They, they happen um, consecutively. So he does the miracle, and the next day he gives this message. And throughout his entire message, Jesus kept trying to emphasize the superiority, the superiority of the spiritual over and above the natural. And what did they want to do? They kept trying to drag the conversation back into the physical realm. That's why they kept bringing up Moses. Hey, Moses fed the Israelites for 40 years. So if you could bring us lunch again, then maybe we can talk more. They were only interested in feeding and filling their stomachs. But Jesus wanted to do a deeper work in their hearts. So he's talking to them about bread, eating his flesh. You know how it is. It's like this. When you eat something, you put it in your mouth, you chew it up, you swallow it, and that food gets digested by the enzymes and the acids in your stomach. It gets broken down into its various components and parts, and then it gets distributed throughout your body and transformed into energy to help you live. It becomes a part of you, in other words. And Jesus was saying to them, When you come to him in faith and believe in him, something similar happens. When you invite Jesus into your life, he makes his home within you, and you become united with him. I still see some puzzled looks on your faces, and and perhaps that was the mood in the room on that day as well. And I don't think the full weight of what Jesus was trying to communicate that day really hit the disciples until they were celebrating the Passover meal with Jesus. See, it wouldn't be that long from this day when the disciples would gather together with Jesus in the upper room. And as he was partaking of the Passover meal with them, a very familiar ceremony, something that they had done every year since the time they were little boys, he took the bread in the meal, the matzah, and he lifted it over his head and he said, this, this bread, This is my body, which is broken for you. And he broke the bread and he handed it to them. And then in the same manner, he took the cup and he lifted it and he gave thanks. And he said, this is the cup of the new covenant. My blood shed for the remission of sins. And as often as you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. And and this is is what 1 Corinthians 11.26 says. It says, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus was there in that moment using the familiar symbols of bread and wine to communicate what they were about to experience the following day when he would go to the cross. And as he was lifted up, paying for the sins of the world, like a flood, the memories of the previous evening would enter their thoughts and their conscious mind as they recalled Jesus' words, this is my body, the bread of life that is given for you. We're proclaiming his death. You see, it was never about the, 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 the bread and the wine, but it was about his precious life and his blood poured out for us. And as we partake of of that meal, which we're going to do, by the way, in in a few minutes, as we partake of that in faith, we proclaim his death. What does that mean? We proclaim his victory over Satan and sin and hell and the grave. We eat the bread and we drink the cup and we proclaim to ourselves and to everyone who's in this room that Jesus conquered death 
that he liberated me from the power of sin. And someday he's going to come back and take me to heaven so that I will be set free from the very presence of sin. And the act of eating and drinking is how we symbolize our faith and dependence upon him. And and I guess what I'm trying to communicate here is this whole thing we call communion. It's, It's so much more than just a religious ceremony. It's an act of incredible intimacy. Listen to this quote. Jesus offers to share with us his life in the most intimate form of communion possible. It is a relationship that is more mysterious, yet more exalted than any human relationship ever known. Communion is, it's mysterious. I like that word. It's about intimacy. You know, there are different degrees, different levels of intimacy that you can enter into with other human beings. And friendship certainly forms the basis of one degree of intimacy. And when you're friends with someone, what do you do? You let them in to your life. Maybe you share secrets with them. You you share parts of your history, parts of your story, parts of your past, parts of who you are, your soul, with this person because there's intimacy there, and that's friendship. It's beautiful. But there's a, a deeper level or, or layer of intimacy that two people can experience, and this happens when a husband and a wife come together. And it's like there's this intermingling of souls that occurs to the degree that God would say, for this cause shall a man leave his father and his mother and cleave unto his wife, and the two shall become one. So when a husband and wife come together in marriage, the two souls are intertwined and they become one. This is the closest form of intimacy that any two people can experience here on earth. And so now we get a window into the heart of our Heavenly Father as God says, I want to experience a oneness with my bride, the church, that rivals and even surpasses the intimacy shared in a marriage between a husband and wife. This is the oneness that God is after. And he speaks about it all over his word. In John 17, for example, Jesus' high priestly prayer. And it's this prayer that he prays for his disciples and all who would come to faith in him as a result of their testimony and witness. In other words, John 17 is a prayer for us, the church. And and the theme of that prayer is oneness. And communion is one of the ways that we express our oneness with Jesus. There is something so deeply mysterious and profoundly beautiful about communion. It releases the power of God, the presence of God, the love of God, and it goes so much deeper than we think. But but this was still a hard saying, and they were struggling with it as verse 60, and then again in verse 66, testifies, it says in verse 66, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. This is one of the saddest verses in the entire Bible. And by the way, isn't it interesting? I know that the the chapters and verses that we read that break up and distinguish our, our Bibles, those weren't there in the original text. It was just kind of all written as a narrative or a story. And it was translators who later went in and added chapter breaks just so that we could identify and find verses. But it is telling that this verse would be John chapter 6, verse 66. It's 
666, and it talks about how his disciples turned their backs on him and no longer followed him. As long as Jesus was providing a free lunch, they were more than happy to follow along. But as as soon as things got challenging and uncomfortable, the majority of them took off. You know, it's interesting. I, I was looking at this particular passage through the lens of the modern church, and I was thinking about how in the modern church we tend to measure ministry success based almost exclusively on how many people a person can gather and sustain. But then I read a verse like this, and it corrects my understanding of what success looks like. Why? Because based on that criteria, Jesus' ministry was a failure. Yeah, he drew large crowds, but by the end, he lost all of them, and they had all fled. Why? Because he refused to pander to their itching ears. He refused to pander to their whims and their desires. And let me just tell you a little bit about what kind of church Maranatha Chapel is going to be. I aspire for us to be a Jesus church. And because of that, sometimes you're going to get words that are hard and challenging. We can't skip texts like this one. You know, the fact of the matter is, the gospel itself, it's offensive. Have you picked up on that? It says that there's a such thing as right and wrong. It says that truth isn't relative. It says that we're all sinners separated from a holy God, and that there's nothing we can do to improve ourselves or our condition. Furthermore, it says that the only way to God is through Jesus, and that we, if we reject his offer of forgiveness, that we are destined to spend an eternity apart from him in a real place called hell. Now, in a pluralistic society like the one we live in today, everything I just shared is so not PC. It's so highly offensive. But I got to tell you, I'm not going to water it down. I'm not going to change it. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. And I'm not going to avoid the hard truths of the gospel. And here's why. Because, yeah, it might turn some people away. But at the end of the day, some people are going to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus. And for whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Because the, pow- the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Somebody say amen to that. Amen. So that would be a real downer of a note, I think, to end on. These guys just turning their backs on the Lord and walking away. But, but not all of them left. Look at verse 67. Jesus turned to his disciples and he said, are you guys going to leave too? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus replied, have I not chosen you, the 12, yet one of you is a devil? He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who through though one of the 12 was later to betray him. All right, let's, let's talk about this, why we can't walk away. Jesus and the disciples stood there and watched together as the crowds turned their backs and slowly shuffled away. And Jesus turns, he says, are you guys going too? And Peter says, where, where else are we going to go? And I like that because I see it, and it, I sense in it, and I know I'm reading between the lines, but I sense in that some honesty from Peter. If you read between the lines, you can almost hear him say, you know, Lord, I've considered it. <laughs> Walking away, that is. 
And I've looked at the alternatives. I mean, you're not the easiest guy to live with. You embarrass us. You frighten us. <laughs> we don't understand you at times. We see you and hear you do things that simply blow our minds. You often offend people that we think are important. And so we've looked at some alternatives. And before we judge Peter too harshly, let me just ask you, have you ever been there? If you go back to verse 61, Jesus asked his disciples, does this offend you? As he was talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, and it's a rhetorical question, but I think the answer was, yeah, we're offended. To, to be offended means to stumble or to trip. And so G Peter, in, in 1 Peter 2, 7 and 8, talks about how Jesus himself is a rock of offense. And I guess I just want to be be honest and transparent here and say that if you follow Jesus long enough, there will come a point at which he does something that offends you. And the question in that moment will be, how are you going to respond? You see, over the years, I've seen so many people, so many Christians that I knew who used to walk with the Lord, and then something happened. They got offended. They got hurt by the church, by a pastor, by a representative of God, or perhaps by God himself. And so just like the crowds, they turned their back and they walked away. Some of them were passionate followers of Jesus in their youth, but they ended up renouncing him. What happened? They got offended. So let me just outline three of the ways I think we tend to allow ourselves to get offended. Some get offended because he demands too much. Let's be honest. There's some things about following Jesus that are just hard to swallow, right? Like he demands to be Lord of all, not just some, but all. He tells us that we need to deny ourselves. Man, we live in a world that tells us to, you know, you need to just pamper yourself. And Jesus is like, uh-uh, you need to deny yourself. You need to put others' needs above your own. He says hard things like love your enemies. Pray for the very people who curse you. Following Jesus means going against the grain and standing up for the truth and resisting the cultural current. Let's just call a spade a spade. A lot of Christianity, it's, it's hard for us to grasp and to swallow. And because of that, some people get offended. Others get offended because in some way, at some point, God fails to meet their expectations of how they thought things should have played out of how they thought the world should work. And let's just be honest, the Lord often works in ways we don't understand and don't like. And even when we do understand why something happens, we often just struggle with it because we disagree with the course that God is taking our lives down. And so we get offended because God hasn't met our expectations. And then some get offended by the Lord because he doesn't show up on time. You ever prayed for something or prayed for someone and they didn't get healed? Things didn't change. Nothing happened. And in those seasons, even the most committed Christians can find themselves wrestling with questions like, man, is this stuff really true? Do I really believe this? Is it really worth it? I don't care who you are. You might be the most holiest person in this room. You're going to pass through a season of questioning and wrestling. Even the great John the Baptist went through a season like that. He was loyal to Jesus, but then his loyalty to the Lord found him in prison. 
And surely in those first couple of days, he was thinking that the Lord would spring him free from the prison, but that never happened. Jesus didn't even visit John in prison. And so as he sat there languishing in that cell, he began to waver and to wonder, is it really worth it? And his doubts got the better of him. And so he sent a contingent to ask Jesus, are you the one or should we be looking for someone else? And Jesus told those guys, just tell, go back and tell John what you've seen and what you've heard, how, how, how the blind see and the deaf hear and the lepers are cleansed and the dead are raised and how the good news is being preached to the poor. And listen, this is Matthew eleven six. He said, and happy is the person who's not offended in me. Blessed is the one who's not offended. This is the forgotten beatitude. And so it's so easy For any of us to say, you know what, I don't know. I might be ready to throw in the towel, to raise the white flag, to turn my back, and to walk away with the crowds. But like Peter, there are some of us who say, where else are we going to go? See, perhaps they thought about giving up, but he realized at the end of the day he couldn't. And so in response to Jesus' question, Peter points to three reasons why he couldn't walk away. And these are the same three reasons that you should persevere and hold on and hang in there. Number one, where else are you going to go? As you look at the pantheon of philosophers and teachers and spiritual gurus who have lived, Zoroaster, Krishna, Buddha, Muhammad, Joseph Smith, Gandhi, all the like, there has never been someone like Jesus Christ. He stands head and shoulders above the rest. He lived a life that is singularly unique. He did things that no one else could do. He made claims about himself that he was God come in the flesh. And then he backed up his words when he hung on the cross and allowed them to bury him in a tomb. And three days later, he rose from the dead. The tomb in the garden is empty. And that's what separates Jesus. So where else are we going to go? And then Peter goes on to say this, you alone have the words of eternal life. There's just something about your word, Lord. Yeah, we don't always understand. No, we don't always like what he chooses to do or what he allows in our lives or what he asks of us. And yes, there are times when we get hurt and we're angry or we're disappointed. But when I open his word, when I open this book, it speaks to me, it ministers to me at my heart, it meets my deepest needs, it delivers me from my sin, it frees me from my fears. You see, God's word not only helps us make sense of the world out there, which it does, and praise God for that, but it helps me make sense of me and my own world, my internal world, and how I'm wired and why I'm here. It's a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It satisfies and it satiates. It liberates and it lifts. It convicts and it corrects. It guides and it gives. The word of God is so powerful. There was this one time, and in fact, we'll look at it in a few weeks when we get to John 7, but the religious leaders sent a Uh, a contingent of of palace guards to go and arrest Jesus. And they tried to arrest him, but they came back empty-handed. And so the Pharisees questioned these soldiers, why didn't you arrest him? And you know what their answer was? This is John 7, 46. (laughs) We've never heard anyone speak like that guy. There's power in the word of the Lord. 
And I wonder, have you come to lean on and to trust in the word of God like Peter had? You know, the statistics say that 85% of U.S. households own at least one Bible, and the average U.S. home owns four of them. However, more than half, 57%, claim they only read the Bible four times a year or less. So the Bible, yes, it is and continues to be and has been the best-selling book of all time by a mile. But it's not just keeping the good book up on the shelf that makes a difference. It is hearing it and it is heeding it. You got to read it and you got to heed it. You got to walk it out. You got to live it out. You got to let it make its way from your head into your heart and down into your feet. And that's where the power of God gets released. And I can just tell you from my own personal experience that when times get tough, as they do, I have just learned to run to the words of Jesus. Oh, how I love the red words the best in my whole Bible. The words of Jesus, if you have a red letter Bible, you know how they put his words in red. And it's just, I find comfort and strength and resilience and hope. And, and I anchor myself to that rock. And because his word is true, I just can't walk away. So Peter says, where else are we going to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And then we'll close this with this. He says, we have come to believe and to know that you're the Holy One of God. And I love this phrase in particular because it describes an ongoing process. He says, we've, we've come to believe and we've, we've come to know. And it, it describes this burgeoning or blossoming experience of reality. Wherein, Peter says, the further I go, the longer I know you, the, 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 the more I get to know you, the more I am convinced that you're the one that all the prophets were talking about. You're the sinless one. You fulfill all the predictions. You've drawn us. You've compelled us. You're the incomparable Christ. You've captured our hearts. It was Peter's own personal experience. I don't just believe the prophets, but I've come to know for myself that you are who the word declares you to be. I've built some history with the Lord, and he's proved his faithfulness to me every season, every struggle, every day of my past. And as I look back, I can see, yes, God was faithful. He was faithful. He was faithful. He was faithful. And so even though I don't know what tomorrow holds, I'm confident as I move into this uncertain future because I have known and come to believe that he's good, that he loves me, that he's with me, that he's for me. And even the things that aren't good, He'll work together for good in the life of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. So we see in the end that there were three groups of disciples present with Jesus as he delivers this sermon. And, and they had three different responses. There was the crowds that turned their back and walked away. And it's always going to be like that. They're going to be those people who just leave Jesus behind and say, I'm taking the easy road. It's not worth the trouble. And in any crowd this size, there are going to also be those who, like Peter, say, I can't quit no matter how tough or difficult the way becomes. Why? Because my heart has been captured. And by the way, that's my response. 
I've tasted and seen. He's too good not to believe. And just like Peter, I've come to believe and know that Jesus is the only way. I love the way that old song puts it. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. And there's one more group that Jesus talks about. He talks about Judas, this group who never really come, but who stay on the periphery. They stand on the outer edges, but refuse to leave. And that's really the problem. They're only here for their own agendas, their own motives, and they're not really one of Jesus' true disciples. And so the question this evening is, which group are you in? Which group most do you most identify with? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. We're going to begin to, we're going to take communion together now. And Lord, I know that you're moving. I know that you're here. And I sense your presence. I sensed it from the first note on the first song of worship time. As soon as that chord was struck, it was like your presence just descended in this place. And so you're here, Lord. And I pray for any and all who don't know you yet. Maybe you've walked away. Maybe you've taken offense at something that God either has or has not done for you, and you've been hurt. And so because of that, you're withholding your heart, and there's a wall there, and God wants to break through that wall. If it's the desire of your heart to come back to Jesus, if you want to begin to walk in, if you want to experience the power of his love, if you want to surrender your heart, to the God who knows you, who came to this earth and had your name on his lips as he hung on the cross. If you want to walk in the beauty of his holiness and know that your sins are forgiven and that when you die, your last breath on earth will be followed by your first breath in heaven. If that's the desire of heart, your heart, you can just pray a prayer like this. Say, dear Jesus, thank you for loving me and dying on the cross in my place. Take my heart. It's yours. Fill me with your spirit. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.